Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to come together and to fellowship and to worship around your word as we see what your word has to say. And we just thank you for this. Guide and lead us in all that we're, we look at in your son's precious name. Amen. Amen. Ezekiel chapter 12, starting at verse 17. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, eat your bread with quaking, and drink your water with trembling and with carefulness. And say unto the people of the land, Thus saith the Lord, God of the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the land of Israel, they shall eat their bread with carefulness and drink their water with astonishment, astonishment, and their land may be desolate from all that is therein because of the violence of all them that dwell there. And the cities that are inhabited shall be laid waste, and the land shall be desolate, and you shall know that I am the Lord. All right, we're going to stop there because that's our paragraph. What verse is the Bible? King James. Uh, I, use, I use the original King James, but I subtract out the old English words as I read it out loud. So just to, so you kind of know, it's... Uh, Every once in a while, if I find a word that is totally incorrectly translated, I'll also change that word in it. Uh, such as when I read the Ten Commandments, I will not read thou shalt not kill, because the, the Hebrew word is thou shalt not murder. So I will change, if it's a very clearly mistranslated word, and at least by our current understanding of the words, I will change them. I've had that people ask me a lot of time, what version am I reading? Okay, it says... Moreover, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, All right, Son of man, eat your bread with quaking and drink your water with trembling and with carefulness. So he's talking about literally shaking, being in total fear. And this carefulness is, is literally anxiousness, anxiety, uh, being of worry. And he's talking to these people, and he's, the people that Ezekiel is prophesying to, he is already in Babylon, but there's the last translation, transition from Babylon that's coming, uh, from Jerusalem coming to Babylon. And he's prophesying basically to them. He's sending these prophecies to them. Be ready. God is judging. He's not, you're not getting away with this. And this is you, your title on there that judgment is, is coming. Yeah, not postponed. Not postponed. Yeah, so, but he says... You're to be, I don't really like the word anxious, but the God is telling them, be anxious, it's coming. It's, it's, you're, now, you're not going to be delivered from it anymore is what is basically coming. And it says, and say to the people of the land, thus says the Lord God of the inhabitants of Jerusalem and of the land of Israel. Again, he's ident identifying himself. Now, why does he have to identify himself in this day and age? that he's talking to because everybody in Jerusalem or the majority of everybody in Jerusalem has been following idols and not following God, which is part of the reason they're being judged. There's always a remnant. So I want to be careful how I phrase that. There's always a remnant for God. So there's always those who are following him, but they're basically gone underground because there's so much violence, so many uh, people worshiping idols that they're kind of backed off and they're not standing up. And to a degree, we've been seeing this in the church in our day even, where the church is tending to back off, or a lot of them are. There's a handful that keep standing up and saying, no, this is wrong. We're not, we're not going to accept this. We're going to preach sin. We're going to say things are sin. We're not going to accept what's coming our way. But yet we see the violence and anger that comes back at us when we take a stand for God. Uh, many pastors, especially when they preach on the radio, if they speak out against homosexuality, very shortly thereafter, they have homosexuals at their door saying, you're not supposed to judge us. You're not supposed to. Well, God says it's a sin. It doesn't, you know, they're not judging them. They're just saying it's a sin. The scribes and Pharisees I've found that studied the scripture just to know the rules so they could judge the people. Anyway, they followed the scripture. The Pharisees read the scripture so they could judge their own people, judge the people. Anything, anytime there's self-righteousness involved, you will judge other people. If you're being self-righteous and thinking that you're following law, you will judge other people because you need to place yourself better than they are to justify your self-righteousness. This is why, as Christians, we have to look at the fact that we are righteous in Christ. We have no inherent righteousness in ourselves. When, I, when I'm obedient, when I'm following the rules, it's because God is changing who I am and making me to be like him. 
And if I'm looking at it that way, that it's all God, then I don't have any desire to be self-righteous and judge others. Now, does that mean I'm going to say what, you're, what everybody's doing is right? No, I'm going to say this is what God says about what you're doing, but it has to be in love. And you can, say, you can say some pretty hard things if you truly love somebody and they know that you love them, that you can say pretty hard things to people as long as that love comes through. When, when people talk about hell and, and punishment of sin, it's, it should not be with this idea, well, I'm hoping you're going there. No, it's not. Our, we as Christians want nobody to go there. One of the pastors I heard on the way home, uh, to the church today from, from work was saying, Think about how many people have said, I, I hope my persecutor ends up in hell. Mm. You know, that is not the way a Christian should look at it. And then he made a point that was really wonderful. What would have happened in Paul's day if all the people that he was persecuting when he was Saul said, well, we just hope he goes to hell. We, how much of the Bible would he have lost if they're, if they're, and I'm sure there were people that thought that way. And this guy's persecuting us so bad, God, take him, take him now and take him Take him and give him what he deserves. We need to be very careful that self-righteousness can really be a problem in our life if we think somehow I'm righteous and I, I need to, to judge others. And yes, that's what the scribes and Pharisees did. They built themselves up. They thought that they obeyed the law. And, and to make themselves look good, they judged themselves against other people. And as Christians, we need to may always be judging ourselves against God. And if we judge ourselves against God's standard, we have no room to be self-righteous because we fail. No matter how good we may look to other people, no matter how good we may look to ourselves, compared to God, we are failures. And this is very important for us. The only way we can love others is to truly see ourselves I am righteous only because I am in Christ and I have his righteousness. And when I know that it's him and him only, then I can love others because they're learning to live within that righteousness just as I'm learning to live in that righteousness. And we're all at different levels of, that, of learning, but we only have righteousness because of him. And that is very critical for us to understand. And again, I keep bringing this up. It's not that we say that everything the world does is okay or when somebody is sinning that it's okay because it's not. It's not okay to live in sin. But I cannot be self-righteous and say, well, you've got that problem and I don't have that problem, so you know, you're really, you know, you got to get your act together. Because if we're comparing ourselves on that level, somebody's always going to be better than us in every area of our life and we're going to be slightly better than other people in most areas of our life, you know, and, but God doesn't grade on a curve. He doesn't say, well, you're better than 50% of the people you go to heaven. No, he says, here's my standard. You gotta be, you gotta be at 100%. And if we don't, if we don't hit 100%, which none of us will, we would all be headed to hell, except for the righteousness of Christ that he hands out to us and says, I died for your sin and I'm giving you my righteousness. So that when we stand before the Father, the Father is going to look at us and see, not me, but the righteousness of Christ. And he says, come on in. You're, you, you are clothed right. I like to say God has the ultimate dress standard. And that's going to be the righteousness of Christ. Anything less than that righteousness of Christ and we fail. And this is when people are going to be judged and end up in hell. It's not even necessarily for their sins that they have done, but for the fact that they're not perfect. He's covered, their, he's covered that, he's, he's, but they don't have righteousness. And this is why Isaiah 64 is one of my verses that I love to tell people. For all our righteousness is filthy rags. I don't want to stand in front of God with my righteousness because he'll look down on it even, even if he took all the sins out. He takes all the sins out and you stand before him in just your righteousness. He's going to say, filthy rags, get out of here. You know, what, what's this bum doing in front of my, st in front of my, in front of my uh, throne? Well, we wouldn't be able to stand at the We would, well, yeah. We, we, but I'm just saying, you know, at, at worst case, even if I stood in all my righteousness, no, no sin being looked at, he's going to just look at that and say, well, you're, you're a bum in filthy clothing. You don't, you don't get to come into heaven because it's the wrong clothing. It's the wrong righteousness. And he's going to say, Depart. 
when we come before him in the righteousness of Christ, he says, welcome. There's a song called One Drop of Blood. I don't know if you've heard it, but it, it talks about people standing before God and the Christians come before him and Satan's accusing them. And Jesus says, my blood paid for it. One drop of blood. And he talks about one drop of blood falling to the scale and, and totally wiping out the, the sin. But that really is what it's all about. Jesus' blood provides the opportunity for us to put on his righteousness because he sacrificed himself. And we need to really grab hold of that truth. And if we grab hold of the truth that it's all his righteousness and all him, and it's all grace that I have anything, then I should, by that same token, be able to express that grace and that, right, that, that position to other people. I don't deserve anything but judgment, and the people I think deserve judgment are just like me, if I really understand it. And therefore, I should be able to give the grace of God to other people and not stand in righteous judgment. And this is something that's sometimes tough for people who've grown up in a church that stayed with God all their life and they didn't fall into the drinking and alcohol and running, running off. Sometimes they can get very self-righteous because somehow they begin to think, somehow I deserve what, I, what I've got. I deserve the, the blessings. And they forget the only reason they deserved is they put God in their heart early on in life, listened to his word, and allowed it to keep them. And we need to be very careful because it's easy to slip into this self-righteousness. You know, especially if you've been clean for a while. You know, it's kind of interesting when somebody gets out of some sin in their life, they can be very judgmental and harsh on other people in that, in that lifestyle. Uh, and think of alcoholics or, or even smokers who get out of their, out of it, and all of a sudden they just, you know, I got out of it. How come you're not getting out of it? You know, and they start getting very hard on people. And we need to be very careful always to show God's grace, because it's His grace that changes us. The one thing about that I've learned over the years is I don't change my life because somebody throws rules at me, including God. He can throw the rules at me, but I'm not going to change my life because I'm a rebellious person. Somebody gives me rules and I want to rebel. But when God shows me grace and love and mercy and all of a sudden he says, are you ready to give this up? And he's done that through many times in my life. Are you ready to give this up? And I'll get to the point eventually that I'll say yes. Usually pretty quicker, a lot quicker now that I'm getting older and walking with him longer. When I was in my 20s and 30s, I was very stubborn and, and didn't respond very quickly. I kept going, no, I don't want to give this up. No, God, I don't want to give this up. And the one thing about it is even though God is nice and allowing you to say no, he turns the heat up when you say no. He, he's going to keep turning the heat up until you finally decide that it's, it's better to give it up than to go through the trials that he's going to put you through because he's going to get his way eventually. <laughs> And the sooner we learn that he's going to get his way, the better off we'll be. Then we start getting a little quicker at saying, okay, God, I guess I don't want to go through the heat. I'll, 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 say, I'll say yes. <laughs> but he's going to get his way. He's going to keep turning up the heat on that, on that area until you finally relent. Uh, so, but he says, you know, tell the people of the land, and he's saying, the God of Jerusalem and the God of the land of Israel. So he's identifying who he is and who's talking. And when we're looking a little while later about why this is also important. But remember, they're, they're very much into their idolatry. They shall eat their bread with carefulness and drink their water with astonishment that her land may be desolate from all that is therein because of the violence of all them that dwell. He says they are going to eat with anxiousness. And, and astonishment means... Uh, dismay or appallment. Things are happening to them. And we've talked about this in various sections in Ezekiel. Part of the ad attitude of the people in Jerusalem and Israel was because this was God's land. Jerusalem was God's city. We are God's people. We will never be kicked out of our land. And so they're finding a little bit of trouble as, as, the, as their kings have been conquered and they're seeing but they always have this attitude of, this is ours. We're not going to lose it. No matter what we do, we're not going to lose it. And part of that goes into how much grace and mercy God has been giving them up till this point in time. All right? They've had a whole series of kings who have been wicked. 
and led them in the wrong way. They only had about six, uh, six or seven kings that were righteous kings. And they kept falling and, and, and leaving, and God was so gracious, he didn't kick them out of the land immediately. And this is something we've got to be careful of even in our lives. God does not come in with the harshest punishments for each time we fail. And if we're not being soft and tender-hearted, we can get easily into this area, oh, I can just do what I want and God's not going to, to punish. We see that in the book of Psalms so often. It's like, God, when are you going to judge? When are you going to deliver? When are you going to... And there, we see it over and over, especially in the first, first 30 or 40 Psalms where they're saying, God, you know, how come the bad guys keep getting away from, with this stuff? You know, when are you going to judge? Sometimes we'll end up doing the same thing when God doesn't come down hard on us immediately. He sends discipline. But, you know, any time that you have just a light discipline, sometimes you can ignore it. And they've ignored it. Israel has ignored it and ignored it and ignored it. And God is finally coming to the place where he says, it's coming. Your judgment is coming. And, it said, and they're starting to see it. Many of the people are already gone. Daniel and the, and the princes have been taken out. Uh, the king at his time has been, been taken captive. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar has put in another king. And then he put in another king when that king re, uh, rebelled against him. And now he's going to get ready to say, the judgment's coming. The final hammer is coming, Israel. Get ready. And they're starting to begin to understand that it's coming. Start looking about what's going to happen. Man has a tremendous capacity to ignore what we see. Ignore what we see and ignore what's happening to us. Now, why we do it, I have no real understanding, but we do. I do. We all do. Where we kind of just ignore the signs. I've heard people, I've heard people say, well, I got fired today or yesterday or last week. I go, why'd you get fired? I don't know. Well, if you talk to any of their co-workers, you know exactly why they got fired in most cases. It, they just didn't see the signs. They didn't listen to the, to, the, to the people around them giving them advice. Judgment's the same type of thing. Sometimes we can get to the place where we just totally ignore all the signs of what's coming our way. We tend to do those kind of things all the time, some people more than others. But we need to be very careful that we look and we keep our eyes open on what is God trying to share with us? What is he telling us? What, is, what are we reading about? And it usually is going to be closer than we think it is when God judges. And the more we know him and the better we know him, the shorter that, light, that span will be if we try to ignore him. Because he's going to say, you're my child. And he disciplines his children faster and more harshly than he's going to discipline the world because we should know better and he's taught us and the longer we walk with him the shorter that time span gets before he increases the the level of our discipline because we should be listening we should be listening we should have that that heart that listens to him when when i go out and I know when God's speaking to me and I know when God's speaking to me. I'm lear learning to hear his voice and it's getting easier to, to hear his voice and, and know when he's wanting me to do something. And it, it's very critical that we hit that point where we're going to go, God, soften my heart. Let my ear hear. The more time we spend with God, the easier it is to know what he's telling us. When you first get saved, it's, you, know, you hardly know his voice at all because you're still stuck on the voices that you're used to hearing. Your mind hasn't been changed. You haven't listened to him very much. The more we walk with him, the more we fill our mind with his word, the easier it is for him to talk to us if we will listen and not harden our heart toward him. And it's easy to harden our heart, especially when we don't want to hear. And uh, been said by Greg Glory over and over again, the easiest place to get a hard heart is sitting in church where you hear God's word over and over again. If you don't respond to it, it's very easy to get it hard. And then God has to hammer on it a little bit to break it back up. And that's not fun. It's not fun when he has to use the hammer and chisel on your heart to re-break it back up again because it's not supposed to be hard because he gave us a new heart. And so we want to be very careful of that. And then why is Israel being in, uh, having all this happen in verse uh, 20, uh, 19? 
because of the violence of all them that dwell therein. Why did God send Israel into the promised land in the first place? Because of the violence and the sexual sins that were going on in the land before they came. God says they've had 430 years to get their life corrected and they won't, so now you're going in and you're destroying everything. And then Israel gets into the same place where there's violence and pollution of the land through the worshiping of the idols. And because they get closer and closer to the idols and further and further away from God, more violence, more sexual sins, and everything else that was predominant in Israel at, this time, at that time. We, and we're seeing it in our world. The further we get from God in our day and here in America, the further we get away from God and his standards, the more violence, the more sexual sins, and the per, sexual perversions we're seeing in our land. Things that were never heard of 100 years ago are being talked about openly. You know, we're talking about the violence and the sexual perversions that go on that would have 50, 100 years ago would never have been talked about are now being talked about openly and we almost have to bring it to the church to say these are the things that are people are talking about and they are sin. Everything about it, this is becoming a highly sexualized in, environment and world and it's, it's being charged in a way that it, anything goes just about. But this is the problem that we're having in our, in our world is that God's standards are being thrown out the window. And once you throw his moral standards out, then anything goes. It really is anything goes once his standards are gone because you have nothing to hang the standard on. And this is the problem. This is the problem that evolutionists have. They, they have no really, they have no basis to say anything is right or wrong because whoever's strongest can impose their will is right by their standards. And the only thing that keeps them in check right now is that the Christians are saying there is a standard. There is a right or wrong. Now, we know that God has also put the conscience of the right and wrong in, internally in people. But if they reject God, they still have no basis to say this is right or wrong because they just know that it's wrong and don't know why. And we see that it's going to be critical. The more the church tries to withdraw from the battlefield to try to protect themselves, <laughs> the worse things are going to get out in the open. And yet, the more we get involved, because there's so few of the remnant that is willing to get involved, the more an uh, anger and attacks come back against Christians who are willing to speak up for God. It helps to understand that we're toward the end times, but it, this has been a cycle in the past. But in Roman days, this was just as bad as we are, if not worse. And yet, the church was able to change Rome and bring Rome back off the, off the precipice. But we need to see the church praying and reaching out and witnessing. And it's going to be, it may end up being persecution in the process. In Rome, Christians died to stand up for God because then people started seeing there's something worth, why are they willing to die? They've got something that they believe is worth dying for. In a lot of churches, there's, there's not a Christianity that's worth dying for in a lot of churches. They've watered it down so much. And I hate to say that, but I've been around different churches. I've been around different Christian, quote-unquote, Christians that you know, don't believe the word and you know, anything goes. And we've got whole denominations accepting homosexuality as, a, as an okay lifestyle that, uh, you know, and saying, well, yeah, we just have to say, you know, it's becoming popular. We believe in evolution. We don't really believe in creation. So we're going to go with the evolved, you know, way that man's thinking. I never have understood that because, I mean, the Bible is pretty clear about that. It's not one of those mystery scriptures, you know. And the Bible is very... When you start throwing away the authority of the Bible, then you'll accept anything. What it boils down to, and the Sunday school material we use from Answers in Genesis really brings this out as well. A lot of this started in the 1850s when evolution started coming out and people threw away the first 11 chapters of the Bible because obviously science was saying it was wrong, so it had to be wrong. Well, once you started throwing out parts of the Bible, anything that you don't agree with can now be thrown out or reinterpreted. And that's what's happening with homosexuality because there's, you know, there are very clear verses as far as I'm concerned and most people are concerned that talk about homosexuality. But if you've thrown out Genesis, 
especially the 11, verse 11, and, and evolution has happened. Therefore, anything based on Genesis and on God with authority can be thrown out because, well, obviously we have evolved, and that is really what you're going to hear from. We have evolved beyond these primitive superstitious beliefs that were in the Old Testament. And, they'll, and what they end up doing is they focus on a lot of the scriptures, primarily from Jesus, that were to love one another. And even there, they're redefining love from a biblical love of agape love where God says, I love you because I love you, not because what you're doing is right. And then they switch it to the human love, which is you do something that makes me feel good, I will love you. And that's what they will try to teach that Jesus taught. And that is not even close to what Jesus taught. Oh, true, true love, biblical love is an objective love. I choose to love. I don't love because I, I feel it. And that's God's love for us. Agape love is an objective love. God chooses to love us, love us, therefore he does. Not because we earned it, not because we deserve it, just because he said, I, I choose to love you. It is the love that a marriage has to be based on, is agape love, that I choose to love this individual so that when I go through the hard times, it says, okay, I chose to love, I'm going to continue to love this person. Even though I don't feel it, I don't, I don't, don't even like them anymore right now, but I'm, I, I chose to love them, I'm going to continue loving them. And that's God's love for all of humanity. He chooses to love us. That doesn't mean he's not going to judge them when it's time to be judged. It's, and he's still going to love them when he sends them to hell, uh, gives them what they asked for and go to hell. Uh, he's still going to love them. He's going to be heartbroken to have to send them to where they've chosen to go. But he's still going to, and he's still going to love. Why? Because he chose to love. And when you talk about God choosing to love, that is wonderful because God doesn't change, so he will never choose not to love because he says, I love. And this is why a marriage has to be based on that kind of love because if you're going to go for a long-term marriage, and anybody who's been married for a long time has probably experienced it, there are times when you are really in love emotionally and everything about it, and then you hit that point where you kind of wake up one morning, you look at the, look at the other person and say, why are we, you know, who is this person in my house and why are we together? Now, in the world, that says, okay, we're incompatible. It's time to get rid of this divorce because I'm not feeling anything. We're going to get divorced. And God says, just keep loving that person. And then another, another year or two, you're back in emotional love with each other, or at least liking each other. And then you go through the cycle all over again. It is the way that we think. Because human love is based on, you do something for me and, I'm gonna, and I'll love you. Even our liking is that way. You know, if you've got a friend, you're, you're something you're getting out of that friendship usually, unless you're purposing to keep it going through a godly friendship. Now, godly friendships hit that agape level quite frequently, and you haven't seen each other for, for 10 years, and you just pick right back up, and you're still friends because it's at a different level of friendship. Otherwise, long distance, you, know, you haven't seen that person in a long time, you cease to be friends with them. It's just the way the human, human uh, emotion works. And, but God is saying, it's coming. <laughs> because of the violence, this judgment is coming. Which kind of takes us back to the beginning where we, where we were talking about self-righteousness. The more I deal with other people, the more I see my flaws and my problems, and, and I might see where they can attend to go to. So there are two extremes to this. I could be pulling away from them because I don't like what I see, because I see my weaknesses, because God almost always puts us with people that, to witness to or to, to minister to with weaknesses that we've gone through, which is why some of the hardest things we go through are sometimes going to be very critical for us in the future, because we can use them to minister to those who are going through the same problems, which then kind of makes us, especially if we haven't got full victory over it, which is very rare, I'm now dealing with people that have the same problem it can be a hard thing. This is why it's so important to bring God in the middle of everything that we do. Because otherwise, we're not going to love people. And we all tend to try to change people. Which is why we, again, that's a form of self-righteousness in and of itself. My way is the way to do it. You know, how come you're not changing to meet my need? And God is saying, usually, we need to change. And that's what I've shared. You know, when I was first married, I used to pray, God changed my wife, and he always changed me. So my prayer nowadays is, God changed me. And in the process, I'm sure he changes my wife, but I'm no longer focusing on what she's changing. It's God is make, making the changes in me. And so our prayer needs to be, God, 
change me to be more accepting, change me to be able to fit in. And then God might just change that person for us as well, but our focus isn't on them. We're not concentrating on their... Verse 20, the cities that are inhabited shall be laid waste, and the land shall be desolate, and you shall know that I am the Lord. He's gonna, he says, everything's going to be destroyed. Why? So that he will be exalted, and you're going to know who, who the Lord is. And we see this pattern in God frequently in the scriptures. You don't want to follow me. You don't want to follow me. I've given you warning. I've given you warning. I'm going to make things difficult so that I can be lifted up. The whole purpose of the book of Revelation in the future is so that people will come to him. Uh, yes, people are going to die. Yes, people are going to get hurt. But the whole purpose of it is for people to recognize that there is a God and that we're supposed to turn to him. Now, how many will? We don't know how many will, but we know it starts with 144,000 uh, Jewish uh, missionaries, and we know that they are successful. And we know at one point there's an angel flying around preaching the gospel. So we're getting lots of the gospel preached and a lot of people hearing that God is the reason for this. And we're going to see this, well, we'll be in heaven as Christians, but we see this over and over through the scriptures. God judges, they repent. He brings, back, brings them back. And he does this even in our own life. We, we mess up. We, we mess up really bad. He, he judges us, and we repent, and he restores us. God's mercy is so wonderful. We fall. We fall flat on our face. We make a terrible witness, and God says, you've repented here. And, he, he doesn't, and the great thing about God is he doesn't put us back at the bottom of the ladder and say, reclimb the ladder. You, he picks you up and he puts you back on the rung you fell off of and shows you his grace. It's like, okay, start from here. He has every right to be able to say, get back at the bottom of the ladder and, and climb up, you know, start climbing the ladder. But that's not the way he works. Why? Because it's none of us anyway. It's all his mercy and his grace. His finished work that he has done for us, it puts us on the ladder in the first place so that when we fall, he says, okay, we're just going to restore you back to where, where, you, where you fell from because this is what you're supposed to do. I love the way God works because I failed so many times and he says, here you go. We're going to put you right back. We're going to put you right back. When somebody walks away from God for a period of their life, they grow up in the, in the church and then they walk away from God and then they come back and God restores restores where they're at. I've got one of my kids especially who walked away from God and he came back and he keeps going. I just don't, I just amazed at how much I know about God's word and everything because of where he was trained as a young person. And it's wonderful when you hear those things because I trained them and it's wonderful, you know, and I knew that they knew more and now that they're starting to realize that they know and that they're getting a good start. And God does that with us. I love teaching people because I love to see them get ability to, to move forward with God and, and see the changes in their life and watch how God will use them because God has got so much wonderful grace and mercy for people and wants to build them up and, and give them so much in their life. And here he's saying, I'm going to destroy the land because of is to give it back to them in, in this case, 70 years. They're only going to judgment for 70 years, and they know this going in because Jeremiah has been preaching it, that they're going to be gone for 70 years, and Isaiah tells them that, by the way, Cyrus is going to be the one that sends you back, back in. Now, and he's from the land of the Medo-Persians, which at the time is just this little city-state that's, that's a nothing. And he's given them, this is going to be a great country, uh, uh, empire and their king is going to send you home. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they would be like us in our day. If you know, I'm going to. God says I'm going to conquer America. And uh, by the way, uh, let's see, what's a small, what's a really small uh, place? Uh, Antigua. Antigua is going to be the one that's going to con conquer you and send you home. Yeah, uh, it would be that kind of, you know, who, <laughs> who, are you, who's going to send us home? <laughs> uh, 
Okay, verse 21. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, what is the proverb that you have in the land of Israel, saying, The days are prolonged, and every vision fails? Tell them, therefore, thus saith the Lord God, I will make this proverb to cease, they will, and they shall no more use it as a proverb in, in Israel, but say unto them, The days are at hand, and the effect of every vision. For there shall be no more and there shall no more be any vain vision nor flattering divination within the house of Israel. For I am the Lord, I will speak, and the word I shall speak shall come to pass. It shall be no more prolonged. In, for in your days, O rebellious house, will I say the word and will perform it, says the Lord. So God tells them there's a proverb in Israel. <laughs> and uh, it, the proverb is that... Uh, the days are prolonged. Every vision fails. They had been pushing off for so long that God had been merciful to them for so long that they're going, well, yeah, he says he's going to do this, but it's not going to happen. It's going to keep, he's going to keep holding off. He's going to keep holding off. And all these prophecies are failing. This is something we have to be very careful of even in our day, that God promises judgment. And there's always judgment for sin. And in our day, we live under grace, and we tend to forget that God is still a God of justice, at least as a whole. Now, he's been gracious. Israel's a great example of his graciousness and his mercy. And for 2,000 years, we've been walking a lot under grace, but there's been judgment over time. There's been great judgment acts all through our history. And God will always bring judgment on sin. He is so merciful. He is so long-suffering that sometimes from a human perspective, it seems like he's not being judgmental. Israel had that same problem. From David, David all the way to, to these uh, last kings, Jehoiakim and Jehoiachin. Like, okay, God has been merciful. He's forgotten it. Uh, I think it's like 800 years that this period is. Maybe wrong in the years. I haven't counted them. But it's been a long time where they've gotten away with just about anything. And God hasn't sent them into captivity. And they're thinking, okay, God's patience and, and mercy is forever. No, God's patience and mercy is never forever. It always comes down to judgment eventually. And we see that even in, in the book of Genesis when Noah was, when he was, says Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord and he came to him and said, 120 years and, man, and man's days are over. And so Noah built a boat. 120 years. And God sent judgment. Wiped out the world. Other than Noah and his family. Sodom and Gomorrah. You're going to judge, you're going to, judgment is coming. Jonah preaches to Nineveh. Judgment is coming. They repent and they get an extra hundred years before they finally have their city destroyed for their, for their sin. There's always the payment that is due for individuals, for nations, for families. <laughs> There's always going to be the judgment that comes because God's grace and his mercy is not infinite. There comes a time when he says, enough is enough, you're going to pay. And we want to be very careful. We want to live a lifestyle that doesn't bring this judgment. We want to be praying for our country that gets a revival so the judgment doesn't fall anytime soon. Now, I'm not sure that we're going to have another revival. I would like to see a, revival, uh, uh, a fourth revival in this country. But we've had three of them already, and that... How long will God allow it to happen? I don't know. How close are we to the end days? I don't know. If, we're, if there's still another 30 or 40 years, there may be another revival in this country. I don't know. None of us know when the end days will get here. We're close. That's what we do know. And even if it's still a long time off, we're still closer today than we were yesterday. <laughs> And as the old, as they always say, we need to live like Jesus is coming tomorrow and plan like he's not coming in our lifetime. And so we do. We want to live and be ready for him coming today because we never know. We don't even know that we're going to live tomorrow, much less whether he's coming back tomorrow. 
So we need to share the gospel. We need to, to, to live like he is going to be there because we might be in front of him tonight. Whether the rapture comes or not, we might be in front of him tonight because of how short our lives are. And we have no guarantee of that. And God's saying, be ready. It's going to come. And then he says, the, verse 33, I will make this proverb to cease, and they shall no more use it as a proverb in Israel, but, they will, but say unto them, the days are at hand, and the effect of every vision, or the approach of every vision and prophecy is coming. The word of every vi- prophecy is coming. God's saying, it's coming. <laughs> Quit thinking it's a long ways off. And usually when prophecies come, Everybody's going, well, God's patient. It'll be a long ways off. And they've heard these prophecies. They've heard Jeremiah telling them, you're going, going to be in a captivity. It's coming soon. You know, don't. And now Ezekiel's parodying the same thing to them. It's coming. You're going to be judged. And God's telling them specifically, tell them it is right there. And they're going to be in captivity before we're done with Ezekiel. This is how close it is for them. But we need to be really understanding that God, when he judges, will judge. And when he judges, it comes quickly. When Noah was preaching the repentance to the people, 120 years was over, the rain started falling. And they all died within, within that 24-hour period of the rains coming down, or less, I don't know how long it was, but within a day, they, God shut the, shut the ark up. And before then, anybody could have come into that ark. Because Noah was preaching, repent, repent. That's what Isaiah tells us. He preached during the time he was building this boat. People could have entered that ark. I'm sure there were extra rooms available for them. And yet, they weren't. They weren't going to. And God knew they weren't going to. And we need to be very careful of this. It says, verse 24, For there shall no more be any vain visions or flattering divination within the house of Israel. Vain, empty visions, empty sights coming from the false prophets, or flattering divination. Now, when you see the word divination, it is fortune tellers or witchcraft, okay? And flattering, that silky smooth, they were telling the people what they wanted to hear. You know, oh, God's, God, God's got forever for you. You know, you, you're not really that bad, you know. You know, look at look at the, look around you. You're not as bad as some of these other people. Sounds like the greatest user. Yeah, well, that's exactly what it is. But this idea of flattering di- divination and divination is that soothsaying or fortune telling that's from say from satanic forces. And he says there shall no more be. You know, they may say it, but you're going to find that they're wrong. And eventually you're going to follow me. And this is something we have to be able to listen. Learning to discern the voice of God. And I I say this over and over. It's wonderful. We need to listen to the Holy Spirit. There have been times when I'm listening to a radio, usually in the background, Christian radio, and all of a sudden somebody will say something, and the Spirit will say, listen, because you're hearing something you're not supposed to hear. When you're taught wrong you need to get to the place where the spirit instantly sends off alarm bells in your brain this is what discerning the spirits is if somebody tells you something or does something that's wrong you know i had one pastor go you you should hear this warning 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 (laughs) and i've had that happen to me at times where something has been said on on a preacher or somebody has said something that just doesn't sit well Sometimes I may not even know why. I just know that something's wrong and I know that I have to get into the scriptures and look at, look at it a little closer or pay more attention to what's being said. The Holy Spirit is in us and will protect us if we will learn to listen. If we will learn to listen to those warnings. You know, when somebody tells you they're a Christian, the Spirit in you should witness that they are filled with the same Spirit. And... I'm not saying we judge them, but there are times when somebody tells me they're a Christian and I, there's just nothing, nothing whatsoever between us that says this person's a Christian. Now, I'm not going to say they are not a Christian, but my first inclination is, okay, 
you know, what is going on here? Why is there? Because there have been other people, as soon as they say, hey, I'm a Christian, there's an instant spirit connecting there saying, yes, this person's a Christian. I don't need to even know what it is they believe or what they go because the spirit discerns for us. And I can't say that everybody that it doesn't link up with is, is not a Christian because I could be the one that's off at that time. I, my spirit may not be quite, I may not be in tune with the spirit. But I'm going to walk with a little more caution around that person because the spirit hasn't linked up. The spirit hasn't said come into agreement. Not that I'm judging them, but I need to say, okay, let's see. Let's see where this person is. And I've had several people over the years that have done that. Well, I'm a Christian. I want to help you do this. And it's like, there's nothing there. And so we want to be able to listen to the Spirit. Verse 25 said, For I am the Lord, I will speak, and the word that I shall speak, the word I shall speak shall come to pass. It will no more prolong in your days, O rebellious house. Will I say a word? Say the word and will perform it, says the Lord God. And God says there's, he will speak and he does perform. He's not going to delay it. He's not going to make it long. And we need to be ready. We're coming to the end days and God is starting to speak. God is saying this church needs to stand up in many, many, in many aspects. We need to take strong stances because there really is just a remnant out there. In, in our country, it's it's popular and it's even chic or has been to be a Christian. We're seeing less of that now. And there's going to be more persecution of Christians as we go forward. But by the same token, it's going to thin out the tares and the, and the goats from the, her, you know, from the herd. And it's going to be Christians drawing closer to one another without all the negatives and all the people who, who are not Christian. And I've, I've seen this over and over. Barnum on his research has said that probably 50% of the average church is not saved. I think he's too generous. My experience is it's probably closer to 80 to 90% of the average church. And I'm not saying every church. There's some churches that are going to have more saved than not because their pastors are teaching the word of God, talking about sin, talking about, and they're going to have more saved people in them. But even those churches have unsaved people in them because they get self-righteous and think that they're Good. And then there's churches that probably have practically nobody saved in them. But we need to be careful. And usually when somebody tells me they're a Christian, my first question is, what does that mean? What does that mean to you? What does it mean to be a Christian? And I've heard some very strange answers over the years on what it means to be a Christian. You know, a lot of times I hear something like, well, well my dad and mom were Christians, or my grandpa was a pastor. I'm going, so what? You know, that does not make you a Christian. You know, grandpa and great-grandpa being pastors does not make you a Christian. Well, I come to church every week. Well, again, so what? That is not what makes you a Christian. I, go, I could go into a garage every day, but I'm not a car. Uh, so we need to be able to follow up with these and find out what do these people actually believe it means to be a Christian. Because in America, it's a very different, different idea. There are places in the world that believe that all Americans are Christians because they're used to a religion being associated with their country. And there are many Christians, you know, it's not as true now as it used to be, but in the 70s and 80s, there were lots of people who thought, well, of course I'm a Christian, I'm American. And I'll go, well, no, that doesn't make you a Christian. We need to be able to, to work with people and share with them that the only way you're a Christian is if you've accepted that you're a sinner that you deserve punishment and have accepted the gift of Jesus Christ's righteousness and his forgiveness and be able to walk in that. And, that, and of course, that involves the repenting of sin and all, of the, all that goes along with it. But we need to be able to understand what is Christianity? What does it mean to be a Christ follower? And how is he changing our lives? And this is the important thing as you look at, so, at your life is can you look back and see the changes in, in the and the righteousness that God is building in you. If you can look at your life and say, well, nothing really big has changed, then you might have to reconsider, are you a Christian? Do I still speak like the world? Do I still act like the world? Do I still fall for everything I used to fall for before I, quote, unquote, became a Christian? Then you might want to look at it and say, did you really make a commitment to God? 
I can't judge it at all. You have to judge that between you and God because I know in my relationship with Christ, he changes me. He has changed me greatly over 44 years. And we need to be able to look at it and say, what has God changed? What, what is changing in my life? And I'm not saying you have to all of a sudden become perfect because nobody's going to get there. But if you sp- still speak the same way that you were as before you got saved and you still have the same general sins and you still have the same thoughts about people and you don't love people and, and you don't love God's word and you don't love God's people, there's something wrong. There's something that has to be dealt with in your life because that is not the way you should be if you're growing in Christ as you should be if you're a, a believer in Christ. But that's the Spirit of God speaking to you during those times and it says, because you know better, you start, you start saying, okay, I've got to change this, I've got to change this, I've got to change this. And in, you know, the good news is, it's not me changing it anyway, it's God changing me. This is the great thing about walking with God and being his child and his righteousness. The more he fills us, the more we fill our mind with his thoughts, the more he makes us like him. He changes us. I don't sit there, I'm not sitting there with a whipping chair forcing my flesh to get into obedience. God just comes in and says, I'm going to change this. I'm crucifying this and I'm putting my life in its place. And that's when you get the victory. Because he's killed the flesh and he put himself in place in that area of your life. And, you know, and I know what people, when they say, well, I'm striving to live the Christian life, I know what they mean, but it irritates me to hear that comment because I want to tell them, quit striving and let God kill your flesh and let him change you. I have found the Christian walk to be so easy over my lifetime because I just let God do it. Just let God The more I fight trying to fight the sin, the harder it gets and the worse it gets. But when I just let God change it, and this is why I say, he usually comes up to me and says, are you ready to give this up? And when I finally say yes, the battle's over. (laughs) The battle has been over for me because I just say, God, yes, I'm ready to give it up. And he says, good. He takes all desire away for it. He puts himself in its place. And Walking the Christian life is easy when we just relax and let take on Christ's yoke and let him carry the burdens and let him crucify our flesh and let him teach us how to walk. And we just say, okay, God. Now, by the same token, it's not easy, obviously, because Satan doesn't like it and he's going to throw temptations at us. And if we're not walking in him, it, it is tough to stay walking in him. But then his mercy and his grace comes along and says, I forgive that. Come on. I forgive that. You failed. Come on. <laughs> I'm going to lift you up. And we just need to love him in that, in that way. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to look at what you do and what you care for, Lord, and that you will bring judgment in the right seasons and, and that you are so patient and loving, but you do bring that judgment. And, Lord, we just ask if anybody doesn't know you, that they will... Th- finally I'd recognize their sin and acknowledge you and, and get started in discipleship with a, with a local church and, and, and grow in you. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.